0: Good morning, and welcome to Redemption Arcadia. For those of you that are here in person, for those of you are, that are watching on our live stream or who will watch this video later on, thank you so much for joining us for worship. I'll invite you to stand and sing along with us. We're gonna sing about our, our status, our identity as children of God this morning, that the Lord has given us that place. The Lord has given us that privilege to be called children of God, and what a, a privilege that, and blessing that is worship
1: our heavenly father this morning we'll sing together
0: we praise you that you have called us your children and the love that you have lavished upon us as our heavenly father. God, we're so grateful. We do pray during such a time as this, God, that you would remind us of your truth, that you would remind us of your love, that you remind us of our standing as children of by your word, that you lead us by your spirit, that, Lord, you would keep our foot, our feet from falling, from stumbling, and, Lord, that you would allow for us to proclaim, proclaim boldly this love of the Father so that the world would know who you are and what it is that you've done for your children. God, would you be glorified during this time as pastor frank preaches from your word as we hear your scripture read lord as we take communion together would you be glorified in us your church we pray all this in the name of jesus amen please remain standing for the reading of the word
2: we'll start all over. <laughs> this is for, from 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 24. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you, And sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth, and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved That he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
3: All right. Thank you, Ann. Good morning, Arcadia. Good to see you all this morning. Um, If you're watching on the live stream or on the recording, we want to welcome you also. We're glad that you're here. I have no idea where the cameras are anymore, so that's probably a good thing. Because I have people to actually preach to now. Um, As you know, we're in this very strange season where... Um, We are doing one Sunday morning service at 9 o'clock that's being live streamed and then we capture it and we post it to our YouTube channel so you can watch it live or you can watch it later. Uh, But as long as we don't gather more than 50 people, we can also have up to 50 people come to the 9 o'clock live stream service in person, which is actually very helpful to uh, the people leading the music and to whoever's preaching. It's helpful for us to be able to have some faces uh, to preach at and to some to have some interaction people may be nodding or even speaking back to us at times it's really uh, helpful if you're new to this if you're watching on our youtube channel and wondering what this is about uh, we are redemption church redemption church is one church with nine congregations uh, spread out all over arizona we are redemption church arcadia so we're located in the arcadia biltmore area of phoenix arizona uh, and we As a church, our nine congregations believe that all of life is all for Jesus, and we're also gospel-centered and outward-focused. And if you want to know more about um, our redemption in general or one of the local congregations in Arizona, you can go to our website, which is at uh, redemptionaz.com, and you can learn uh, more about us. Uh, As for the Arcadia congregation, uh, we've decided that we're going to start, we're in this, quote, new normal. Uh, which we think is just eventually someday going to be phasing us back into something that looked like the old normal but it's going to be very slow going but we're going to start doing some things and we're going to start with this coming wednesday night july 22nd we're going to start back up wednesday night bible studies and we're going to do them just like we're doing on sunday morning they're going to be live streamed and then the recording is going to be captured and posted to the youtube video so you can watch it live wednesday night make some dinner and sit down and watch it Um, uh, and, or you can, or you can re, uh, watch the recording or listen, in, listen to the recording uh, later on. But we're going to start doing that again, maybe not every Wednesday night, but we've got some Wednesday night topics planned. And again, you are invited to even come Wednesday night if you want, uh, just like you're invited to come on Sunday morning uh, at 9 o'clock. We don't anticipate that we're ever going to hit the 50-person limit, so you're more than welcome to just come in person and be with us on those nights. Uh, this coming wednesday we're going to do kind of a one night one topic one off uh, and it's going to be the the title of it i think is should be should oh here it is yeah should i be worried about the end times and and naturally our answer is of course you should be hiding under your bed and building shelters and anyway no i'm kidding but that's what we're going to talk about Uh, and when i say we're going to talk about it i mean we're going to have tyler james and i are going to be doing uh, kind of a discussion. We're each going to have kind of an opening statement and then we're going to discuss some things. Uh, we're going to go from 6.30 to maybe 7.45 um, and, and just talk about that because we've had a lot of people asking about that and understandably so. We understand why uh, people would do that. So, All of that is out of the way. We get to now go back into week four of our current series in the book of 1st John. And you heard the passage that Anne read. And the good news is that the passage that Anne read this week is the whole passage. If you recall last week, the passage that Reagan read was just the first part. And so uh, this is it. And so if, if you have your Bibles, and certainly we hope you have your Bibles with you at home or here or in the office, Uh, Pull out your Bible, turn to 1 John chapter 3, starting at verse 11, and here's what we're going to do. You've heard the passage read, now all we're going to do is go through it verse by verse. That's all I'm going to do, and trying to give you some helpful application along the way, and when we get to verse 24, we're going to be pretty much uh, done with the message, but there's lots of gospel in this as well that we'll get to talk about. So, verse 11 starts this section with John saying, this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, love one another. From the beginning is a big issue with John. He's all about from the beginning. We've talked about how John uh, knows and loves the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. Uh, He's He's an expert on especially the book of Genesis and the creation narrative and everything that goes on there. The the fall, we've already seen him reference the fall in John chapter 2 verses 15 uh, through 17. And again, he just wants to keep pointing us to the beginning. This is the same message that we've had from the beginning and it has never changed. The problem is that you and I keep trying to change the message. Our desire as human beings, especially fallen and infected with this sin virus, since the fall in Genesis chapter 3, is we want God. To be manipulated to change to our standards and our desires and our pleasures and our outlooks and our principles and our philosophies Rather than us understanding God and submitting ourselves to him And so we keep trying to change the definition of things. We keep trying to change the history We keep trying to change the doctrine. We keep trying to change the teaching That's just what we've done not just in the last five years or last 10 years or the last 50 years But since the beginning people have tried to change the teaching, change the term. If I can redefine the terms, I can change the meaning and I can change history. That's how it works. And so we try to redefine the word love. What does that mean? Well, it means what I want it to mean. And of course, that's always a very self-centered, anthropocentric, or human-being-centered view on love rather than what God's view on love is, and that is a problem. He says, this is what it's been from the beginning. It has never changed, and even though you keep trying to change it, it's never going to change. God is the same yesterday, today, and he will forever be the same. And we can think that we've outmaneuvered God, but we have not. And then John does something very interesting, especially for John, because John is usually pretty positive and pretty upbeat. He goes to a negative example of this idea of love rather than a positive example. He goes right to Cain and Abel, but Cain in Genesis chapter 4. This is a negative example. He could have used, you know, he knows the Old Testament. He could have used Leviticus 19, 18, where God says, love your neighbor as yourself, He could have even used Jesus' teaching when Jesus quotes Leviticus 19, 18, when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, love God, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus mentions a positive example of this as well. Oh, by the way, not to mention. But negative examples can also be very powerful, and Paul knows that. So verse 12, he says, don't be like Cain. And he gives us an example of hate. And this example of hate from Cain results in physical murder. Now, he's going to go on and talk about how his definition, his understanding, and even Jesus' understanding of murder doesn't necessarily have to include physical murder, but it's just just a a, a vision of hate that the Bible has. We're going to get to that in a minute, but he starts with Cain, who physically murdered his brother Abel. So why Cain? And the reason is simple. Cain is an excellent example of the depth and extent to which sin can take us. It's amazing in our culture today how many people are willing willing to say, well, I would never do what that person did. And this is, man, this is so true now. Everybody's being videoed at their worst. Have you noticed that? everybody is now being videoed at their worst in the public sphere and then it's getting plastered all over the Internet all over social media and all of us sit back and watch those videos and we say we would never do that if we were in that situation and the problem is is that we don't know that for sure in fact because of the corruption of sin we most certainly would be inclined to do with those people. and so we're so quick to judgment about others and about piously setting ourselves up Cain is an example of what this corruption of sin can do to all of us, taken to its logical conclusion. And Genesis chapter 3 had just wrapped up when this story of Cain and Abel begins in chapter 4, verse 1. And the first thing that happens in chapter 4 is murder. We have the fall, we have the original sin in Genesis chapter 3, and the first thing that happens after that is a murder. And it's a brother murdering his brother. Uh, I've quoted this many times. I love saying this. Uh, Tom, our founding pastor, was pretty well known for saying, you know, if you read Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and then skip 3 and read, start reading chapter 4, pretty soon in chapter 4 you realize that you, you miss something significant. Have you ever been on Netflix and you're, you're watching through a serial show on television and you accidentally skip an episode, pretty soon you're like, hey, what? we missed something. What did we miss? You missed chapter 3. You miss episode 3 of Genesis. You've missed a very important episode. And you're going to be wondering what you have missed. Cain is also a great example because he speaks to the hypocrisy that many people in the church will put on themselves because we're told in Genesis chapter 4, verse 3, that Cain was a worshiper of God, and yet he murdered his brother. Certainly, hate and murder, John's point, are not marks of true worshipers of God. He says so here, and he also says that back in, in verse 10 of chapter 3 of 1 John. And so we have verse 11, verse 12. We've known this from the beginning. Don't be like Cain. And then as you're reading, it might seem like verse 13 is just, sort of dropped in out of nowhere, almost as if, almost, it, 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 the segue isn't quite, we're not quite used to the way this segues, we're not quite used to uh, the way John writes in this sort of circular, poetic, metaphorical way, but, but he, says, he says, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Well, why would he say that here, now, in the midst of this discussion about hate, murder, and Cain? What does verse 13 have to do with verse 12? And I'm going to get to that because it does connect. It's very important to John that he makes this point right here about Cain. But I wanted to hear from other people about this idea that the world hates people of faith. The world hates Christians. And so even though Redemption, all of redemption is not preaching through the same book right now, we are going to start preaching again on the same calendar, all nine congregations, Starting August 9th, we're going to be going through the Gospel of John. But right now, all the different congregations during the summer are doing something different. And so we're not having our big R preaching collective, but we have decided, and we have been having at Redemption Arcadia, we've been having a preaching collective just for us, and it's been magnificent. So 11 days ago at the Redemption Arcadia preaching collective, I asked everybody, I said, "Uh, why does the world hate Christians? Why is it? And there were three main answers that came out just like that. I mean, there was no hesitation. Three answers right out of the gate. We all agreed, yes, those are pretty much the three answers. Really understandable. We get them all. We understand them. But I would push back on every single one of them. And and we're going to do that right now. So here are the three answers that we got. Number one, Christians and Christianity is narrow-minded. It's narrow-minded. And I would say to that charge, guilty. (laughs) Guilty as charged. We are narrow-minded. There is one way to salvation, and that is Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except for him. Yes, we're narrow-minded. We are guilty as charged. But I would also argue, isn't that good? All of us are narrow-minded. Every single one of us is narrow-minded, I guarantee you. Do you want an open-minded commercial airline pilot? Do you? Come on. All right. Do you want a guy who's up there, or gal, who's up there in the cockpit going, you know, this whole flap thing when we land, let's try something else with the flaps when we land. It'll work. It'll probably work. I'm so open-minded as a pilot. I want a narrow-minded pilot. Here you go. Just think about... I, don't, I, I won't even argue this. I'll just say it and let it sit with you. I want narrow-minded food preparers. Yes, narrow-mindedness is good. I want a narrow-minded doctor. Frank, I'm sorry you have cancer. I think what we'll do is... Um, let's start with Tylenol, because it kind of works for headaches and stuff. Maybe it'll work here. I want a narrow-minded doctor. I want a narrow-minded accountant. I don't want an accountant who's open-minded about how we're going to work the tax stuff, and then I'm the one who gets stuck with the IRS audit and the prison sentence. I want a narrow-minded auditor an accountant. Narrow-mindedness is good. Why is it this is the only arena where narrow-mindedness isn't good? Narrow-mindedness gives us the assurance of the truth. It's where we are able to place our confidence. It's how we have hope in the promises of God. Narrow-mindedness is good, but the world hates it. Here's the second reason the world hates us. We're hypocritical. We are hypocrites, every one of us. We're hypocrites. Guilty as charged. I'm a hypocrite. You're all hypocrites. Every one of us, we're all hypocrites. I'm not a hypocrite. I'm sin. All right, here you go. Uh, th- this is Chuck Swindoll, you know, his famous saying, the last part of the human body to be sanctified is the right foot. Everybody speeds, you know. Th- th- we're all hypocrites, yes. But everyone is a hypocrite. Even people outside of the faith, they're hypocrites too. There is not one person alive who can live up to their standard or moral code that they've set up for themselves. That's why their standard and their moral code is always shifting. Because as soon as they get to that point where they can't live up to it themselves, they drop that part off and then move forward. Okay? We're all hypocrites. This is why grace is the key. This is why the gospel is so important. Hypocrites need grace. They don't need more moral codes. They don't need more law. They need somebody who fulfilled the law, Jesus, on our behalf, and now we get grace from him because we are all hypocrites. Here's another negative example of uh, hypocrisy. It's one of my favorites, I admit. Um, back when I was in the marketplace, this is going back into the 80s and 90s, uh, once a month for a week, I would spend my time in New York City in Manhattan uh, for market, we, uh, we were buyers for retail stores, and so once a month for a week, we were in Manhattan, staying there. And um, for whatever reason, um, there was, a ma- there was always a major market that we had to be at the week after Earth Day, which is in April. A big Earth Day is on Sunday uh, in April. And on Sunday in Manhattan, there's this huge celebration of Earth Day. You know, let's, um, let's, let's love Mother Earth. Let's, let's make sure we're not doing anything to hurt the Earth. Let's, let's clean things up. Let's, we're worried about climate change, all of that stuff. It's, it's Earth Day. I will tell you that we would, on those weeks, we would have to fly in Saturday and get into our hotel on Saturday because you couldn't get in there on Sunday. And then the only thing anybody wanted to talk about in Manhattan, in New York City, that whole week after Earth Day, was how awful the Earth Day people were because they left Manhattan in the biggest mess it's ever left in ever. It's the worst day for cleanup in Manhattan every single year, of course, until recently. But it used to be the worst day in Manhattan for cleanup ever. And the people in New York hated Earth Day because these people who loved the Earth would trash the Earth and then walk away and let New York City spend hundreds of thousands of dollars cleaning it up. Hypocrites. We are all hypocrites. Here's the problem we should never judge a philosophy or a religion by the worst adherents of that philosophy or religion. For instance, I can tell you, no socialist wants me to judge socialism based on Jim Jones. Do you know who Jim Jones was? 1978, Jonestown, Guyana. All of his followers who, who bought into his socialist movement, they all committed suicide or were murdered, 908 of them. Look it up. That's a socialism you can get behind, right? See, so when I'm talking about socialism to somebody, they don't like it when I bring up Jim Jones. Just like I don't like it when somebody brings up Jim Baker or somebody like that, a hypocrite. No, nobody wants to discuss the hundred million murders of Mao and Stalin when we're discussing communism. They don't want to go there. We're all hypocrites. This is the problem. Christianity, should be judged but not by looking at me or you, but it should be judged by looking at Christ. Because he's the one who has already lived the life for us. That's the point. And then he gives us that righteousness. He imputes that righteousness to us. Um, years ago, again, 30 years ago, there was a fairly popular bumper sticker, and I used to sort of cringe every time I saw it because it was just so, I don't know, churchy and pious-sounding The problem is is that the bumper sticker is absolutely true. It's this bumper sticker. Some of you might remember it. Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. It's true, it's true. Here's the third reason we're hated. Christianity is antiquated, it's ancient, it's old. So in other words, anything that's old is automatically bad. I think there might be some antique dealers who would argue with with you about that. Um, C.S. Lewis had a term for this. He called it chronological snobbery. Just because we're alive today, that automatically makes us better than anything that happened before us. Chronological snobbery. Uh, here's what I find interesting about that. All of us, especially in the West, not Western United States, but, you know, in the West, world, Western worldview, all of us are Aristotelian. We live pretty much by Aristotle's Uh, Thoughts, processes, philosophy. His stuff's really old. Like 2,500 years old, yet we still embrace it. One of the problems, of course, is that most people don't even realize that they are Aristotelian in the way that they think and carry on their lives. It's just something that we do um, without even thinking about it. I've, I've seen books written that are steeped in Aristotelian theory, never mention Aristotle, and I'm not even sure if the authors understand that what they're arguing for and what they're doing and and the principles that they're trying to set in place are actually Aristotle's. Started with Aristotle 2,500 years ago. But we are. We are stone-cold Aristotelian. But Aristotle's older than Jesus. So why? Why does Aristotle get a pass? Because Aristotle doesn't threaten our worldview. That's Why? but it seems like we're a little bit hypocritical about that too. Now, there's the three reasons, okay? And I understand those complaints against the church and against Christians. I would say they're legitimate. There's just another side to the story on each of those. But consider John's reason that the world hates us. He's not talking about about, um, being antiquated or being hypocrites. He's not not talking about uh, the fact that we're narrow-minded. He's pointing at Cain. He says, look at Cain and Abel. The reason the world hates us, here you go. This is is going to be an outlandish accusation, but John levels this accusation. The world hates Christianity because they're jealous. Cain was jealous of Abel. That's why this verse is dropped in here to let us know that the world hates Christians and Christianity actually, deep down, because they are jealous. Why? Because we do know the Savior. Because we have salvation. Because we can claim with confidence that we do know the truth. And that drives people crazy. It gives us confidence. It allows us to live, as the, as the scriptures call us, as Jesus calls us, without Fear. John is saying that the world hates us because of what we have, and they do not. That's outlandish, but it's also true. At the root, that's what it is. Verse 14, John reminds us that becoming a Christian is a resurrection from death to life, but it is also a transformation from hate to love. But then look at verse 15. Here we now sort of transition to this idea that hate is not just expressed in in behavior, in, in physical murder. It's not just something that is seen. It's not just behavior. See, a lot of us believe that hate has to be active to be hate, but hate can be passive. Hate is not just the sins of commission, but it's the sins of omission. Hate is doing the wrong thing, but it's also not doing the right thing, according to what John is saying here. So in other words, hate is indifference to suffering and injustice. Hate is indifference to suffering and injustice. Hate is apathy towards wickedness. Hate in your marriage is certainly adultery or abuse, but hate is also living with your spouse as merely a partner or a roommate and not as a sold out one flesh lover. Hate in the church is not just gossiping and lying and coveting but it is also tribe making and building hierarchies of ministries where yours is always on the top we know these things are true about hate because of verse 15 john says everyone who hates his brother is a murderer you don't actually have to kill the person but if your heart harbors this hate in the sermon on the mount chapter five of matthew jesus equates hate and anger to actual murder And, and and just a note on Jesus's point there. We need to remember that what Jesus wants is our hearts. He doesn't need our behavior. He didn't go to the cross for our behavior. He went to the cross for our hearts, for our souls. He knows that if He has our hearts, the behavior is going to follow. There's going to be fruit. Love will follow. Obedience will follow. That's one of John's primary, if not his primary, message in this book. And then for many verses, uh, 16 through 18 are quite a challenge. Let me, let me reread those. John writes, By this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Uh, One commentator, uh, Andreas Kostenberger, I believe it is, writes this, Certainly hate and murder are characteristics of the children of Satan, but there are just as damaging but more subtle characteristics of the children in Satan, indifference and a lack of apathy. And John goes on to say that, Jesus gave his life for us ought we as his followers also not be willing to give our lives for others the greatest picture of love ever the greatest love story ever is Jesus on the cross nothing tops that when it comes to a picture of love a story of love he gave his life in love for every one of us but understand there's a bit of nuance here as well rarely in our context here today rarely will anyone ever ask to actually literally give their life for a brother or sister of the faith not literally not actually rarely will that happen it happened in the early church happened all the time in the early church in John's time and it happens all the time in other places around the world today it's happening in other places around the world but in our context I would argue it's rare to be called in our faith to literally die for someone else. But here's the real question. Are we willing to live sacrificially and selflessly for others? Are we willing to lay down our lives and pick up our cross and live for others? Are we willing to live a life of service, of giving, of presence, of advocacy? Are we willing to stand in the gap for those who need gaps filled are we willing to, in this sense, are we willing to die to ourselves? Are we willing to die so that others might live? That is, in our context, a life laid down for others. We need to understand that. Are we willing to forego certain comforts or all of our comforts in our life to be able to do that? And that's a high call, isn't it? It's a high call. Again, Tom used to say this all the time. Man, the first time I heard him say this, it just busted me. It's actually easier to die for your faith than to live for your faith. Somebody stands and points a gun at you and says, renounce Jesus or I'm going to kill you. A lot of people are like, yeah, okay, I'm in. Somebody stands next to you and says, okay, you're going to have to give up something now for this person who really needs it. I don't know, that's going to be hard. It's going to test my comfort, my convenience. And then you look at verse 17. In John's Jewish context, withholding goods from somebody who genuinely needs them was thought by the Jews to be the same as murdering them. If you see somebody who has a need and you, do, and you have the ability to feed that need, in the Jewish first century context, if you don't fill it, it's the same as murdering them. So you see what's going on here? You see what John is trying to get us to here? And then the Greek Uh, that's translated sees one in need and here you go closes his heart closes his heart is literally shuts down his insides and prevents compassion from flowing if you do that there's a problem and finally in verse 18 we can't genuinely say that that we love if there is no fruit or evidence of that in our lives the fruit and evidence of Jesus's love for us of course is him going to the cross his fruit and evidence are not in question. Ours, unfortunately, are, because we're also still living in this sinful life and this sinful world. But we also know this is true, that if there's love, there's going to be evidence of that love. Here, you go. I'll speak to the married men for just a second, because um, I've run into this occasionally in, um, in pastoral counseling. Maybe you've had this conversation at some point with your wife. Um, the wife will say, you know, the problem is, is that he doesn't love me. And so I'll ask the husband, do you love her? He says, well, yeah, of course I love her. I tell her all the time. And what does she say? She says, yes, he tells me all the time, but he rarely shows it. Is there an actual manifestation? Here you go. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Is this a love that is put into action For your wife. Now, we could talk about the wives too, and some of you guys are like, yeah, please do. We'll get to that someday, not today. I I have only like 30 seconds left, which I'm going to take 10 minutes. But here's James. Here's how James says it in James chapter 1, and this is kind of an amplified version of what James says. He says, Don't just hear the word of God and collect knowledge and puff yourself up with piety, we must also do the word of God. Something that goes hand in glove with hearing the word, but is much more difficult to, to get around to. But James says that if we don't also do the word of God, we're deceiving ourselves about how well we know the word of God. Our piety becomes pointless. And then look at verse 16 and 20 kind of together. We already read 16. Let me read 20. John writes in 20, For whatever, whenever our heart, our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, And he knows everything. That's a great verse there. And the reason it's great, and pair it up again with verse 16, what we begin to understand now is that grace is not a thing. We often treat grace as a commodity or as something that we have on hand when we need it. But in reality, grace is not a thing. Grace is a person. Look at the language in these two verses. This language is extraordinarily personal, relational, and loving. That's not a thing. That's God. That's Jesus. That's the Messiah. I'm reminded of Hosea chapter 11, verses 7 through 9. Listen to this. My people are bent on turning away from me, God says. He's talking about the problems with Israel again, his people, the Jews, constantly rebelling and turning away. They're bent on turning away from me. And although they call out to the Most High, He shall not raise them up at all. That's God sort of contemplating what He's going to do with His people. But then look what verses 8 and 9 say How can I give up on you, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. And the idea is that even though you are rebelling, even though you are turning against me, my compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man. See, that's what man would do. I'm God, though. I'm filled with grace. I am the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath verse 19 reiterates the importance for us to know the truth and when I say the truth I mean that with a capital T but here is the interesting thing about this gospel truth that is so powerful for us knowing this truth not only gives us confidence which it should and that's good but this truth also makes us insecure and doubtful it does it just does it's so powerful it's so big it's so amazing It offers so much hope and such a big promise that it makes us insecure and doubtful. And the reason is because it's that big and unrelenting. And we begin to realize that it's a truth that we can never live up to. See, our whole lives, everything about our life outside of the gospel is you have to live up to this. You have to live up to that. Everybody has to live up to. That's what we're called to everywhere, not in the gospel. Jesus already did it and he didn't live up to it he just lived it he lived the perfect holy life but we realize we can never do that this side of heaven so that just keeps working on us again look at verse look at verse 20 again let me read it again for whenever our heart condemns us god is greater than our heart and he knows every, he knows everything about you he knows everything you've done Not just the stuff that you're willing to confess to your friends or to your pastor or to your spouse. He knows everything you've done. He knows all the stuff that you're not even going to bring up. And yet he still loves you. And yet he still gives us grace. It's common for Christians to be insecure and doubtful about our faith and salvation. That's the other side of this truth and confidence coin. We know the truth. We know his sacrifice. We know God's holiness and law. And when we truly examine it with our sinful, fallen hearts, we realize that we're going to fall short. And so as a result, I have these many conversations with people who believe that they are not saved because they cannot live up to God's law. Because we know we're sinners. We know we're sinners. And that is, when, when somebody says that, I don't think I'm saved because I'm still sinning. When somebody says that, that is actually and ironically a sign and a very bright sign that you are, in fact, saved. Because you do struggle with sin. If you don't struggle with sin, you have no knowledge of any of this. Paul struggled with sin. He was super Christian, and he struggled with sin. And remember, our salvation does not depend on us. It depends on God and what his son did. And that is good news. Jesus will never turn his back on us. He will never leave us nor forsake us. When we believe and when we come in faith, we are his. Even in Mark chapter 9, the father who wants Jesus to save his child says to Jesus, I do believe. Help me with my unbelief. Don't we all feel that way? I believe, but can you help me with this stuff that I don't get or that I doubt or that I'm worried about? Um, this is from a, a John Bunyan book. It, by the way, it's not Pilgrim's Progress. There's another book uh, that he wrote. He wrote a book on a single verse in the Bible, it's John six thirty seven, where Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. The name of the book is Come and Welcome to Jesus Christ. He wrote it in 1678, and, and this section that I'm going to quote is a dialogue between Bunyan and Jesus, and Bunyan represents every one of us. Okay, so just don't think Bunyan, think of yourself when Bunyan is talking, and it's really something. So Bunyan writes, But I am a great sinner. I will never cast you out, says Christ. But I am an old sinner. That's for me. I am an old sinner. I will never cast you out, says Christ. But I am a hard-hearted sinner. I will never cast you out, says Christ. I am a backsliding sinner. I will never cast you out, says Christ. But I have served Satan all of my days. I will never cast you out, says Christ. But I have sinned against light, I will never cast you out, says Christ. But I have sinned against mercy, I will never cast you out, says Christ. But I have no good thing to bring with me to you, and I will never cast you out, says Christ. Here's the lesson. Jesus never grows cold toward us. No matter then you get to verse 22 it's an issue of prayer and I just want to remind you a a couple things about prayer first of all God does answer every prayer I hear people say all the time God didn't answer this prayer God didn't answer that prayer yes he did it's just that the answer was either no or wait Okay, not every prayer is going to be answered yes and here's the second thing the primary purpose of prayer Besides honestly pouring out our hearts, no matter how messy that is, is not to get God to align with us, but rather to, for us to learn how to adjust and align with him. So when the Bible says that when, when we pray, God will give us the desires of our hearts. See everybody, oh God, pray and God will give you the desires of your hearts. Well, you need to understand the backstory there. It does not mean... That you and I are going to be able to manipulate God into our corner of desires and he's going to do whatever we want. That's not what it means, but rather that we are being transformed into people who want what God wants. That's what it means. We are given a heart for what God wants and then he fulfills our desires. And finally, as we close up verses 23 and 24, let me reread them. John writes, and this is his commandment, that we believe In the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Notice how believe comes before anything else, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Uh, Those two verses are a reminder of what I would say are the three most important components of this entire letter. And that is to believe in Jesus, to love because of Jesus, and to follow. Jesus. You could say obey Jesus. And notice in verse 24, you and I do not earn the Spirit's presence in our lives. We don't make ourselves good enough, worthy enough for the Holy Spirit to come into our lives and be present with us and in us. Rather, God gives us His Spirit by His unmerited favor. It's a gift of His grace. If you know Christ today, understand, you are favored by God, and that's a magnificent thing. That is a magnificent thing. And here's what's amazing about that. I want to go back to Cain and Abel to point this out. You know what happens after Cain murders Abel? God goes and has a very difficult discussion with Cain. But he doesn't destroy Cain. Instead, he marks Cain as his. Even in the wake of this murder, God is giving Cain grace. Now now think about about when Jesus goes to the cross. Jesus, in a sense, is Cain going, okay, I'm going to go to the cross so that you, Cain, can live. And now you, Cain, can experience the favor and the mark of God in your life. And in a sense, in a sense... Jesus is going to the cross also as Cain to crucify Cain's sin so that Cain can be saved and given favor. See, there's no wiggle room here. There's no way out of this. If you know Jesus, if you believe Jesus as God calls us to, as John calls us to, if you believe him, that's it. You're sealed by the Holy Spirit and you have grace and favor, mercy and love. That's the gospel. So come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Let him embrace you. You embrace him back. Let's pray together. Uh, Lord God, we thank you for your word and its truth, and we thank you for how boldly that John uh, claims these things and writes these things to us. And that even now, 2,000 years later, we can study these things and learn from them and be encouraged by them. God, we thank you for your love, your grace, Thank you for what you've done for us. God, I just pray that we'd be reminded every day of that. Help us to preach the gospel to ourselves. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So, hopefully those of you at home know that this is coming and you've already prepared um, for the Lord's Supper in your home. We also have the uh, individually wrapped communions here with the wafer on the very top sure you take that transparent piece off first to get, to get at the wafer and then the, underneath that you can tear off the covering for the, uh, for the juice this is, a, this is a sacrament this is a uh, mysterious time the understanding of what Christ did on the cross for us we can talk about it but we don't we will never fully understand it until he comes again though we may try, and we should try. but This is mysterious. It's a celebration of the new life that we have in Christ when we come to the Lord's table and we take the elements, but it's also a confession of our sin, and it's a confession that we are embracing Christ as Christians, as followers of Christ, and it's a confession that we're willing to take what the world is gonna try to deal with. So this is an important time. And Jesus set it up as a very special and important time. And the night that he was betrayed, he's with his best friends, even with one who is going to fix his wagon. Pretty good. He took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body for you, do this in remembrance of me. And then after they had had their supper, he took the cup of wine and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant, poured out for your sins this in remembrance of me Paul reminds us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again so let's do that right now
0: Thanks for worshiping together this morning please receive this benediction may the grace of our lord jesus christ our savior and our friend may the love of god binding us together and building us up may the fellowship of the holy spirit knitting us together as a church family be with us all until we meet may. again amen Go and live all of life all for Jesus.